Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Pediatric Grand Round series. Uh, great to have you again. I hope you're enjoying your cup of coffee this morning. A little bit rainy, but we need the rain, so it's a good thing. And uh, just a couple of announcements that I have. Uh, we, we do have the evening lecture series. This is on Tuesday, October 20th, uh, by Rob, our own Rob Ketter and uh, Dr. Garnecki, who's one of our developmental pediatricians. And they will be uh, uh, talking about navigating autism in the 2020 a Toolkit for Pediatric Primary Care. That's on October 20th, 6.30 to 8.30. It's all virtual. Please sign up. Great speakers. I think you've had uh, Rob in many of the series, and uh, he is terrific. And, and I think you'll meet uh, uh, Dr. Garnecki also, who is really fantastic and doing great work. So please sign up for that. It'll, you can have wine while you're listening to the, uh, to the CME series. And then this Friday, we'll have a little bit of a change. Uh, uh, Dr. Shriver is not available, but Dr. Fader is going to uh, actually share stories from the front line of COVID-19. Hank has been, who all of you know, Hank has been uh, working with us uh, through the pandemic, uh, uh, dealing with uh, all COVID-related questions. And if you remember, Hank always tells great stories. And so he will be sharing some of those stories from the COVID pandemic era for the last seven months. And he'll be joined by Dr. Bennett from our Adolescent Medicine Program. Uh, and then uh, she will be talking about the impact of of COVID-19 and the adolescent population. So please do join us on Friday. A little bit of a change, but I think you'll enjoy it just as well. Uh, I wanna make sure that everyone uh, stays safe. Uh, we have, uh, as, as all of you have seen, the state of Connecticut has increasing numbers of COVID-19. Uh, our rate's still about 1.5% for positivity rate, which is still lower than most states, but however, it is going up. So you have to be vigilant, be vigilant. Do not lower your guard. This is a time that you have to be absolutely careful with masking. Eye protection, if you're seeing patients at all times, really, really important so you can avoid exposure. Even a child who tests negative and comes to the hospital potentially could be positive because they would have been in the incubating period. So please, please, absolutely wear your eye shield, your eye shield protection of any form that is logical and also your mask at all times. Uh, for today, we have a, a fantastic speaker that's uh, zooming in from uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you, Dr. Winston, for joining us. Uh, to introduce her, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Kevin Borup to uh, do an introduction, but I want to take this time to congratulate Kevin. Uh, Kevin has been with Connecticut Children's for about 16 years, uh, and he is now the official director of the Injury Prevention Center. He uh, succeeded Gary Lapidus, who retired from that role, and although the good news is Gary's staying with us doing research and other important things, uh, but, but Kevin uh, has uh, all the skills to take this program uh, to, uh, to the next frontier, uh, Kevin. He's uh, not an MD, which is a good thing, uh, but he, he has, he's a lawyer, has a master's in public health, and also a doctor in public health uh, from, from Rutgers University and the University of Illinois. And so we are really, really pleased that he is staying on with us, uh, bringing all his great new ideas. He's also a faculty of the Department of Pediatrics. So Kevin, I'm gonna ask you to introduce uh, Dr. Winston and in, for the Grand Rounds from your role in young driver safety, protecting populations and your patients. Lastly, make sure you write your Q&A in the Q&A section of the Zoom meeting, and we'll be reading those questions at the end. If we can get to those questions, we'll make sure that we respond them directly to you. So uh, enjoy the day, stay safe, keep dry, and I'm gonna ask Dr. Borup to come up and introduce the Grand Rounds. Kevin? Well, it's my pleasure today to introduce uh, this speaker. Uh, Dr. Flora Winston is a board-certified pediatrician, uh, a doctorally trained engineer, and a public health researcher who conducts research at the interface of child and adolescent health, injury, uh, engineering, and behavioral science. Uh, Dr. Winston's work is published in peer-reviewed journals, 
and conference proceedings and focuses on the area of traffic injury. She's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania of, in Philadelphia and serves as a scientific director of the Center for Injury Research and Prevention at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the director of the National Science Foundation Industry uh, University Cooperative Research Center, the Center for Child Injury Prevention Studies, uh, and director of a National Science Foundation Research Experience for Undergraduate site. Uh, Dr. Winston uh, currently serves as an associate editor of Injury Prevention, a leading uh, journal in the field of injury prevention science. Um, and she served on multiple uh, US federal study sections, committees and advisory panels and holds executive and has held executive committee positions with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Secretariat for the International Society for Child and Adolescent Injury Prevention. In August of 2018, I had the pleasure of uh, going down to Philadelphia to see her team and her center uh, as a guest during a transportation research board workshop. And uh, I came out of that experience really energized at seeing all that we had accomplished in the field and really excited for the opportunities we have in the future uh, to improve the safety of children and families throughout the United States. Um, so without uh, further ado, please uh, welcome uh, my colleague, Dr. Flora Winston. Good morning. So I, it's great to be here. And I think we're gonna switch over to the slides. Yes. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. And of course, thank you, Gary. I've always been inspired with what you've been able to accomplish in Connecticut. And I'm even more inspired with what Connecticut's been able to accomplish with COVID. Congratulations on keeping your rate so low, but also congratulations on all the great injury prevention work you're doing. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it's been a long journey for my career. And I just wanted to really tell people out there that it is okay to pivot and go through other things. My dissertation in engineering was very, very basic science in 1989, as you can see. Just keep um, clicking. I'm sorry, I'm not running my own slides. But I learned public health from the best, from Don Schwartz and Sue Baker at Hopkins. And then went on to have a career of where I am now, click, where I'm actually working to try to reduce crashes to children, youth, and young adults, uh, injuries and, and deaths, and also to make sure that they recover. Next slide. So I do have some financial disclosures that are quite important for this talk. Uh, one is I'm very proud of is that I'm a co-founder of a CHOP spin-out called Diagnostic Driving. Um, and I am, uh, I am bound by a conflict management plan. That, so all of my work has been reviewed um, carefully by others. But my work is also funded by lots of sources because that's true in injury. You have to go where you can actually work with the people who can make a difference. So I'm very proud of all of my sponsors, but I'm also proud of my work. And I just wanted to disclose this. Next slide. But more importantly, I have academic disclosures. There's a truth about success when people move along in their career that they often don't say. And I wanna just make sure that everyone knows that I cannot take sole credit for anything I do. I've worked with many people and without them, I would not have been successful. 
I've also had many failures along the way. I've learned from them and they've shaped me and I embrace them. You know, the one thing that um, is, is true is that you learn from failure, you don't learn from success. And then I also didn't pursue one career path. I actually more pursued a calling, which was to make sure that I did all I could to reduce child injuries and the impact of child injuries. And our work is really about research that can change actions that can have um, an impact. But when I first started at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, no one understood why I was studying accidents. Um, in fact, the head of the IRB approved my first study, but didn't know why I was even doing it. So just let you know, these are, this is academia. And in particular, um, when you have a, uh, something you really care about, just go for it. Next slide. I also am part of the Center for Injury Research and Prevention, a center of emphasis, one of 10 at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And we're all dedicated to advancing the safety of children, youth, and young adults through research and action. Without them, I could not have done my work. Next slide. So uh, at the end of this uh, activity, this um, CME, I hope that you'll be able to name the top three driving performance errors that contribute to young driver crashes. Um, think about COVID and driving and how social distancing poses challenges to driver testing and licensing. And then to start thinking about you as a provider and how you can not only keep the child in front of you safe, but also your community and your state. Next slide. So let's start with the top. I um, don't know how many of you are familiar with young driver crashes, but I want to give you a sense of maybe some of your myths and your thoughts are not actually accurate. Next slide. So the first is why do we study injury? Now, maybe all of you know this, but I um, find that when I talk to a lot of cancer researchers, they're surprised that what you can see in this, um, in this figure uh, that was produced by Rebecca Cunningham um, a while ago. The, the data were from there. That light, that, um, light blue or uh, medium blue uh, sliver um, on the left under disease, that's cancer deaths. Crash deaths are that um, larger um, uh, part of the pie there. So you can see that, in fact, I wish I had a pointer. <laughs> you can see that the, um, the, that it's just a fraction of the deaths from injury are due to, um, to cancer and other diseases, and they're all dwarfed by crashes, in particular in firearms. So if we really want to make a big difference for our adolescents and our children, this is where we have to focus. Next slide. So here's the typical crash. In fact, one in three deaths for adolescents are due to motor vehicle crashes. This happened outside of Philadelphia around the Thanksgiving holiday. Conrad sped up, but it was so dark he didn't see the pothole. Next thing I knew, we were flying through the air. My heart is broken and shattered. The only survivor in the crash was a 17-year-old using a seatbelt. These were not reckless kids. These weren't um, kids who were out for a joyride. They just had been working in the mall and were on their way home, maybe going a little bit too quickly, not seeing the pothole. And look at all the deaths that we had. Next slide. So a lot of people don't realize this. They often talk about um, older driver crashes and, um, and worrying about their grandparents driving, but the highest lifetime risk of crashes, please click again, is when you first get your license, by far. In fact, over the years, 
crash rates for older drivers have actually come down dramatically um, to the level of adults. And it's really the young drivers that still are driving our high crash rates in the country. Um, in the first months of licensure, their crash rates are higher than any time in their lifetime. And it comes down over the first couple of months. So I've really devoted my career to focusing on time zero, that time when they get their license. What is, what is causing that? What, is, what can we do to prevent those crashes early on? Next slide. So when I think about it, and this is true of almost every state, if not all states, and definitely in Connecticut, you have three phases for graduated driver licensing. You have the learner phase when you're practicing with your parents. You have the independent driver phase with restrictions when you first get your license. And it's during that restricted driving phase when you're inexperienced with skill deficits that the um, crashes tend to occur, or at least they're the, higher, the highest rate. So let's next slide. And what we've learned over the years is that what is really the case with the drivers is that they actually don't have the skills to drive well. If you think about how long it takes for someone to get the skills necessary for, uh, for learning how to play a sport, how learning how to um, practice medicine, learning how to do many other skills, it takes lots and lots of hours. And when you think about driving, we really don't relegate enough hours to the practice and the practice isn't deliberate. But really what at the heart of this is, is that you have to scan, click please, so that you can look far ahead to the sides and into the rear so you, to anticipate hazards. Next click. Then you have to recognize that something is a hazard and make a decision that you actually have to do something about it. And then next slide, next click is you have to decide to act and your action has to be appropriate. It has to be the right action and you have to be skilled at it. So it's really quite complex. You have to scan, detect and respond. And that is the part that only comes with deliberate practice and experience. Next slide. So unfortunately, I just learned this morning that the videos are not working, but what I'll play these at the end if we can. But what is happening, if you see this woman, um, young woman, uh, camera looking at her and then looking at her scene, she never looks over to the right where that window is and she nearly cuts off a truck that's coming from behind her. Next slide. In this situation, again, teen not scanning, not looking. He's looking down at his um, iPod, iPhone. I'm not sure because he's a few years older, so I don't think iPhones were out yet. Um, he's not wearing his seatbelt. And you would think that it's a pretty calm area, but in fact, there was a car. And um, the car sideswipes him. And he, um, he actually rolls around in the car. So these are two situations where the teen's eyes are not on the road. They're not scanning well. They're not anticipating hazards. And because they also have poor skills, they're not able to respond as quickly as they needed to be. Next slide. So in fact, teen driver crashes are because they're clueless, not careless. 95% of teen crashes are due to driver error. And the most common are poor scanning and hazard detection going too fast to the road conditions and distraction. This is just happens over and over again. These are the issues. You have to have your mind and your eyes on the, on the road, your hands on the wheel, and you have to be prepared for hazardous conditions. Next slide. So in summary, as I said, 
<clears throat> young driver crashers are because they're clueless, not careless. And if we think about um, preparing our drivers, the most important thing we can do is we can make sure they have the skills and the experience they need. Then we can reduce their distractions, then work on intentional risk-taking and impairment. I'm not saying that the last two aren't important, but if you wanna make the biggest difference with teen driver crashes, just make sure your teens know how to drive. Next slide. Well, everything should be made simple, but made as simple as possible, but not simpler, according to Albert Einstein. And I completely agree with this because we're pediatricians. We know that no two teens are alike. Next slide. And we've come up with, you can click on this, a, a, straight, a trait state model to help us understand it. So I've already started talking about experiential traits, knowledge, driving exposure, that can help you <clears throat> reduce your hazard inattention and reduce your driver errors. Next slide. But there also are biological traits that are important, brain development, impulsivity, others that can lead to rec recklessness, and that can also lead to driver errors. Next slide. I mean, next, uh, next uh, click. And then there are actually states that make either of these traits better or worse that can lead to task inattention that could make things um, even harder to detect. Things that are biologic, like comorbidities, depression, lack of sleep, if you're, this is where impairment comes in, whether or not you're taking your ADHD meds. And then there are these transient states, peers in the car, electronics, mind wandering, external conditions, all of these make driver error more likely. So if we really think about it, the tools we have in our toolbox are first box, make sure they have the, the knowledge and driving skills and experience. Then the second box is where we come in as pediatricians to make sure that we're recognizing the traits that might put them at risk and we're managing that through careful management of medications, maybe improved driver training. And then it comes into how the families have to deal with it, which is to really start thinking about how they're going to better manage and monitor and set expectations about their early driver to give them the best chance of success. Next slide. So I tend to think about this traffic medicine paradigm in terms of tiered risk. First, click, is the universal approach. What do we do for populations without regard to individual risk? And this is where Connecticut is, is in a good place, but could be a better place. And that's the graduated driver licensing laws. Thinking about how we're making sure that the teens have the required training, practice, what restrictions are in place, all of that is important to set the, bound, the, the bottom, the base on which all of this is built. Then next is the, click, the selective approach. Next, next, where we look at the subgroups and what risk factors they have. How do we tailor the approach through policies and guidelines to, it, to acknowledge the risk and to manage it? For example, with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, what should we be doing differently for this group of teens who is at a somewhat higher risk of crashing? And then finally, next slide, is the indicated approach. What are we doing exactly for our patients the individuals with challenges or demonstrated unsafe behaviors. If you know that your teen in front of you has challenges learning, what are you doing in terms of it, their IEP 
to make sure that driving is um, addressed so that they can learn better for driving. So we need an individualized approach as part of our clinical care to make sure that the restrictions, training, and monitoring in place to ensure that they're safe drivers. Next slide. So here's an example of a, a study we just published recently, 2019, that we were looking at changes, relative changes in working memory as, um, as a teen developed over from age 11 through 18. And what we would find is that if they're compared to each other, they have a relative increase in working memory capacity. Understand that all of them increase their working memory capacity, but we're talking about the ones who have more working memory capacity compared to others. And you'll see in that, um, that, that dashed line, they are the drivers who had no crashes. The teens who had a poorer capacity for working memory, less working memory capacity relative to the others, they were the ones who tended to crash. And the ones in between ended up, believe it or not, being non-drivers. So this is the first indication that we actually will be able to start to predict who are the drivers who are more at risk, because we know that it takes your mind and your actions to be able to avoid crashes and to be able to keep all of that in your mind and, um, and address those issues that you're facing that could, could be leading to a crash or could be helping you to avoid the crash. Next slide. So in summary, the big three early errors are poor scanning, not managing the road conditions well and, and going too fast for the road conditions, following too closely, and lastly is distractibility. There's a range of drivers' abilities and, um, and skills, and we need to take care of that and understand it and have an individualized approach and deliberate practice. And that time zero for all of us should be right before the teen goes out for independent driving. What do we do to prepare them as learners? And what do we do afterwards to monitor to make sure that the teen is going to be safe and acquiring increasing skills with um, increasing responsibility demonstrated as well as um, increasing um, ability to, to do the things that they need to do um, in terms of avoiding crashes. Next slide. So now we're gonna move on to the second part. Um, I was really shocked to see the ripple effects that came from COVID. And I think that this is one that's somewhat hidden, the ripple effect that comes with uh, driver testing and licensing. Next slide. So as we all know, social distancing is the most important way for us to avoid getting the COVID, um, get, getting COVID, um, acquiring the coronavirus um, disease. And what this did was across the country really put on pause driver school, driving schools and driver testing. And why is that? It's obvious because you cannot be within six feet of someone if you're sitting in the front row next to them in the front seat, um, thinking about how to, how to drive, teaching them how to drive and, and assessing all of their, their skills. So in fact, many schools closed, if not forever, temporarily, and the testing centers definitely closed and didn't allow people in. I'm sure this is something you experienced in Connecticut. So how do the, te how do the states respond? Next slide. So one of them is they experience backlogs. 
So these are signs in front of a, um, of a testing center in Connecticut that just showed that there were tremendous backlogs. And I'm sure many of you experienced it. If you had a teen, they couldn't get their license. So next slide. And so there were different options. So the one that was most worrisome, and I remember talking to people in Georgia about this, is they actually just waived the road test. So here you have teens who we already know have the highest crash rate of anyone. And the only gate that you have between there being a learner and there being um, a, a driver is this road test. And in Georgia, for a period of time, that test was completely waived. Now it was turned around and they had to come in and get a test at a later date, but that was already after they'd been driving. And so this was really a concern. We don't know what the result is, but I do know that in this year so far, despite the lower numbers of people driving, there was way more speeding and the fatal, the fatal crash rate has gone up precipitously this year compared to years in the past. So we'll have to just wait and see, but I do hope the teens are, um, are safe. Next slide. A second option that happened in Pennsylvania, it happened in Ohio um, and other places is something called the modified driver test. Well, if you can't be in the car with the driver, why don't you just stand outside the car? Well, if you're standing outside the car, what are the kinds of things you can do? They're really more operational skills. So when we think about driving, there are three levels. There's operational, there's tactical, and there's one which is more around planning. The tactical is the one that you would put in place when you're actually out on the road, when you're detecting and avoiding hazards, when you're doing the, the, the skills that are around defensive driving. The planning is about whether you would even go into a situation if you can anticipate it could be a hazard. So the modified driving test has been pretty much watered down to just parallel parking and a few other things with someone looking at them from outside the car. That's uh, where it is. Now in Pennsylvania, they're allowed to do more if they want to, but this is the minimum. And uh, we're starting to see some of the states rolling this back and getting back to a full driver test, but this is where we are right this minute. Next slide. So I guess the question is, is there a better way? How can you maintain the distance and get more information? So we already had been studying this at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia we knew that there were limits to the existing test, inconsistent outcomes because this is um, examiner subjectivity in looking at them and, and looking at these skills, inconsistent exposure to traffic and environments. We all know that there are easier places to go for your road test than others. And um, I remember this when my son was growing up and that has a lot to do with where they're taking them out on the road. And then, because of safety, limited exposure to potential crash scenarios. In California, there was a period of time where they actually took the drivers out on the highway, but that, that since has stopped because of the danger to the evaluator. So we're actually taking people on the road and just really making sure that they have operational skills, not really seeing how well they can perform in a potential crash scenario. So now let's add the challenge of COVID. It's impossible to maintain social distance in the car if you're examining them. There's a shortage of PPE. I'll tell you what Maryland did is that the governor went out and procured as much PPE as he could. So they continue their testing and all of their examiners had the PPE that was necessary. But in many places, they didn't have the personal protective equipment. 
And then there's actually a shortage of trainers and examiners because these people couldn't be trained because they were laid off, they were furloughed, whatever might have happened during the backlog. But <clears throat> this was um, really a challenge to an industry that was already suffering. Next slide. So what we really needed was a valid diagnostic assessment that, that could help us down this path. So in asthma, what do we do to help us with our, um, with our clinical care? We have spirometry. When we think about, next slide, when we think about cardiovascular disease, what do we have? We have the exercise stress test. So there's already this concept that there can be a test that can help us evaluate performance. Next slide. But when it came to driving, there's nothing. There isn't a validated assessment. So for the past two decades, that's what I've been working on, is trying to develop this um, valid assessment. Next slide. So we use potential crash scenarios from the National Motor Vehicle Crash Causation Survey. We use standard safety metrics, you know, for example, the ones that run your, your car's uh, safety features. We talked with experts, we looked in the literature. It's pretty well known what you need to do to avoid a crash how many seconds you need to be behind the car in front of you, many other situations like that. And then we did um, very careful studies to see if we could distinguish drivers based on skill, based on experience, and based on crash history. And we were happy to show that we could using a simulated assessment. Next slide. But the challenge was it was in a lab. It was a $250,000 piece of equipment that definitely couldn't be replicated anywhere. And so we went to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and talked about the idea that this actually could transform driver safety, and they invested in us. Van Candidai, who used to work for me, left CHOP and ran um, this, era, this company. He was given protected time by CHOP to develop the product, evaluate it, pivot, change, and then in the end, we have a virtual driving assessment system that is easy to set up. It uses standard hardware, and, um, it's, and we now are happy to say that it's valid. Next slide. So now we then needed a partner, because if you have something that works, it's not going to do anything unless you have somebody who can deliver it. And Ohio, at the same time, came out with a need. They, wanted, they understood the limits of the licensing exam, and they wanted to enhance it with simulation. And they had a network of licensing centers and a very rigorous system for, dri for young drivers that they could use to get this going. So next slide. And we're happy to say that just last week, we published a paper in Health Affairs, a special issue on young drivers, on, on, on children. And I was happy that they included young drivers that talked about our health transportation partnership. And I know Connecticut has tremendous health transportation partnerships as well. So I think that this is an undervalued area where we can build on this to improve the safety and well-being of our youth. This, is a, um, this work involved many, many, many people in Ohio and tens of thousands of participants people who came in for their licensing exam and at the same time were given a virtual driving test and an on-road exam in a blinded fashion. And we were able to show that the virtual driving test very highly um, accurately predicted how they would do on the on-road exam. And here is Governor DeWine announcing that he's going to roll this out across the state and in the driving schools. Next slide. 
So the way it works now in, in, um, in Ohio, it's integrated into the workflow. There's a written test that then, um, that normally, that then if you're under 18, requires you then to go on for driver's education and drive them behind the wheel training. And then, but if you're 18 and older, you aren't required to have any of that training. But everyone has to get the virtual driving test before the road exam. So at this point, how it's integrated into the workflow is that it serves to provide another way to give feedback to people so that they can see what their skill deficits are. And we're moving towards thinking about how it actually can, back to the issue with COVID, allow us to have another way to test people that doesn't put examiners at risk. Next slide. So what are the features? It's realistic driving simulation that is in a real world scenarios that are um, potential crash scenarios. It's safe and repeated exposure to these um, scenarios. There are 10 different drives. It takes under 15 minutes to complete, easy to use, completely self-guided, and you get immediate results. Next slide. So what did we find? We found that it was 83% accurate overall in predicting who would pass or fail. But according to um, Ohio, what they cared most about was whether or not we could accurately detect the people who we thought were going to fail. And in fact, almost no one who we said was going to fail went on to pass the on-road exam. So that's where the 0.32% comes in for false alarms. And if you fail the um, virtual driving test, you're fourfold increased risk of failing your on-road exam. But the added benefit is you also get feedback on how you can be a better driver. So it's a um, teachable moment at the time of licensing where we can provide this critical feedback. Next slide. Okay, finally, we're gonna talk about the ways that you as a provider can support safe driving for young drivers. So we now know what are the reasons why they crash? What do we have to think about in terms of at-risk population and how we can really start thinking about accurately looking at these skills? Next slide. I'm not sure if you um, saw this, but there was a crash in January where a teen was killed after his car flipped. Um, and this is a very unfortunate but common scenario for teens. Next slide. I again, can't show you this, but you can see that it's um, slightly wet and there are leaves. And this teen did not realize that it was time to slow down. And he came as fast as he could after, after the stop sign and then spun his car. This is very, very common. As remember, that was the second risk. The first is poor hazard um, uh, management and scanning, and the second is um, going too fast for road conditions. Next slide. So there is a model to think about with this kind of a situation that the National Academy of Medicine brought out called the continuum of care model, typically applied to drug abuse, it's applied to other areas. I think it really works wonderfully for young driver safety. <clears throat> so all the way to the left, we promote the safe behaviors that we wanna see. And that's something we do all the time in Connecticut um, Injury Center does extremely well. Then you move on to universal. As I was telling you, that's graduated driver licensing laws, requiring training, um, all the other things that are more policy level. You move on to selective and indicated, as I said. And then once you know that someone is an at-risk individual, you start really tailoring to make sure 
that not only do they get better from their crash or their, their citation, but what we start seeing is we want to really make sure that we can have them become independent adults who drive safely and have the benefit of, of mobility and transportation. Next slide. Next slide. All right, so let's look at the population. So what could you do, what can your role be at the population level, the clinic level, and your patient level? So very, just in a nutshell, at the population level, you can advocate for stronger graduated driver licensing laws and transportation equity. At the clinic level, you can make it easy. You can integrate into workflow the things you'd like to see everyone do for your young drivers. And then for your patient, know where the risks are and what really matters. Balance safety, wellness, independence. And when in doubt, don't feel that you have to do it all. There's a profession called a driver rehabilitation specialist. They are in your area and they are someone to whom you can refer your patient. Next slide. Okay, so what can you do in Connecticut with stronger graduated driver licensing laws? Next slide. So the Insurance Institute for High, I'm sorry, the Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety is um, a, one of the great um, uh, uh, groups that can actually do something to, uh, can tell us where the, um, the I'm sorry, I, was, I see the colors changed. <laughs> so um, I will explain this to you. They're, they're the, it's a group that the, um, the, the, that the country looks to to tell us where their laws are. And they have come up with these five, six areas that are important for your graduated driver licensing law. That there's a minimum age 16 for learner's permit, there's a six month holding period, 50 hours of supervised driving, nighttime driving restrictions, passenger restrictions, and then um, at age 18 is when you have your unrestricted license. So in fact, um, with as of um, earlier this year, Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety um, says that you only have two of these provisions and therefore your rating is in the caution level. Okay, so that yellow at the, at the um, right there, the rating is a caution level. So these are things you can start with immediately is to try to improve your graduated driver licensing law in, in, um, in Connecticut. And I'm sure you're already working on this. Next slide. What can you do in your clinic? Next slide. So some of the things you might want to do is, what is the young driver process that you have? You know, we have things for the pre-participation sports physical, for school assessments, but what do we have for driving? So there could be a pre-driving assessment that happens when they're 15, 16, whatever it might be. There could be standardized information to share. I'm sorry about the typo, it's ORG. Um, we have lots of resources for free on teendriversource.org. You can have a standardized referral plan as well as um, really evaluation of your local driver rehabilitation specialists. And that would be a great thing for you to have for your clinic. And then what do you do if a teen has a crash, a citation, a reportable medical condition? Um, we, at least in Pennsylvania, are mandatory reporters if their medical condition gets in the way of their driving safely. These are all things you can do. And then you could consider the virtual driving assessment system. We are in the process of just starting to bring the virtual driving assessment to all of our clinics at CHOP. Next slide. And then finally, your patient. How can you balance safety and wellness and when in doubt, seek support? So what are some of the ways you can think about how to approach that? Next slide. So a team comes in, you really don't 
know? Is that true that they're going to be a good driver or bad? I think that you can probably predict which of your teens are going to have challenges with driving and which of them aren't. And so what do you do to act on that? If you know that there are some red flags, how do you act? Next slide. Well, I always say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I want to keep my teens from crashing because that can take a wonderful life and just stop it short. Next slide. So what are some of the care plans you can think about? You can look at whether or not your teen is at and is it part of an at-risk subgroup? Does the teen have ADHD, for example? Do they have personal risky behaviors? Did you already see that this teen was a teen who shoplifts and does other kinds of things? If so, all of these behaviors come together and they might come out when they're driving. And are the conditions fixed or variable, progressive or stable? How do you handle those? There are actual plans that you can come up with. There are tools that you can use that can help you to figure that out for your patient. But if not, you can refer. So you can categorize your teen based on whether just universal GDL is fine, and then you just basically do psychosocial education. You teach them about this. You help the parents think about how to set limits and monitor their teen, that type of thing. But if the teen needs more, because the teen has personal risky behaviors or they have some other issue, then these are the ones where you're going to start doing more for them, either individually or in partnership with um, a rehab specialist. So that's really where I like to think about it. So if this teen comes in, can I handle it myself? Do I have to refer? refer? Is there anything I need to do or can I just let the families keep going? And then once they actually get their license, how are we going to monitor them? There are in-vehicle monitoring devices, but there also are things where you can just coach the parent on how to better um, ask questions like, where are you going and how, when are you coming back and, and do you, are you going to wear your seatbelt? Next slide. So how do we achieve safe driving for teens? It's through precision prevention. Recognize and manage your um, patient's changing needs and risks by giving them the right treatment at the right time, in the right place, in the right situation. And honestly, it's your doctor's office. Next slide. So I really value Benjamin Franklin. He's my role model. And this is what I live for. Um, prevention is worth a pound of cure. So I'm open for any questions anyone might have. And if you want to learn more about the virtual driving assessment, um, here's how you can reach diagnostic driving. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Dr. Winston. That was truly, truly outstanding. Uh, it's really dissecting a, a problem and being objective about it and how to deal with it. It's sort of prescribing for otitis media almost. Uh, not quite. Yeah. I'm an infectious disease provider, so it's not that simple, I realize. Um, so we have uh, the session open for questions, and we have a number of them that have come through. We'll begin, and, and Dr. Borup will moderate as well. Uh, from Dr. Blummer, thank you, Dr. Blummer, for joining us. I know you're here with us every morning. It's good to have you. And here is the sort of a statement and a question, I guess, and, and he always brings uh, provocative questions. Uh, I suggest that we have the wrong kind of driver's test. It should not be on city streets. It should be on a state-run obstacle course where you have to go through the obstacles, slippery road, rain, child running in front of the car, similar to a training course. And I guess 
training course for a shooting range, he says, but I'm probably not going to go through the shooting range of the car, but uh, if, if you can, uh, uh, Dr. Winston, if you can comment on that, uh, on that provocative question, I think it's a valid question. It's a wonderful question. There are a few lots I want to say about that. The first is that's exactly what we do in our virtual driving test. So you are onto something. I think it's really important. And what the nice thing about the virtual driving test is it's safe. You know, it's easy to administer and it's safe and it can be um, distributed very widely. The second is that there is the right time and place for doing obstacle courses. There have been lots of studies around the, the world that have looked at these um, hazard courses. And unfortunately, if you give it too soon, the teen doesn't have the right skills and it can be a boost of confidence if you um, go through one of these and do okay because you don't have any other traffic. It can really lead to um, negative outcomes similar to what happened with um, with anti-lock brakes when people started going out in ice because they thought they could handle the ice because they had the anti-lock brakes. So I think you're onto something that we need to be testing on the real skills that get to crashes. I personally decided to go down the path of using virtual assessments like they do with um, airlines and um, in so many other um, areas. Uh, but I do think we need to be looking at other skills. Thank you for the question. Kevin, any other comments from Connecticut in terms of how we do it here? is right on point. You know, years ago in Connecticut uh, with uh, Dr. Campbell, we engaged in a, in a simulation study where we brought simulators into high schools with the same idea. It's used in the aircraft industry and in pilot training in the military before you use a piece of equipment, you simulate it. And um, I'm happy to see the progress that Dr. Winston has made with her own system, and I'm definitely going to follow up on that. Wonderful. That's great. Yeah, so the, a little bit of a difference of how we use simulators is they're not for training, they're for assessment. And so I think that we need to be thinking about um, when and how we use technology. And this gets back to the first question, um, just making sure that we keep the kids on the roads when we need them to be, but we safely test them when we, um, in ways that we can. Great. Good job, Kevin. Next question. Um, it's again sort of a common question. Seems like there is an incredible opportunity here for even more advanced virtual reality technology or public health uh, uh, gamification. I don't know if that's the right word that becomes more easily accessible outside DMV. I think this gets back to the virtual reality technology as well. So uh, maybe you can expand a little bit of that, Dr. Winston and, uh, and Kevin, if you can follow up on it. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot that we can do as the virtual reality gets better and better. Um, you know, it's, I think that um, our assessment is, uh, is very simple, um, single screen. I'm not sure that, and I think that it could potentially cause more simulator sickness if we actually have something uh, that involves, you know, Oculus Rift or something like that. But I think it's only going to get better and better. And so this way we can expose our teens to things that we wouldn't normally be able to because of the risk. But virtual reality in my other hat in innovation is gonna be used in so many ways. I've seen it used, for example, in MRI machines to get the kids used to the MRI before they do it in so many places. It's also gonna be, um, as we already know, 
used for training our residents. I mean, you know, this is going to be important for simulation training for, um, for uh, resuscitation. All of these rare challenging events um, are really ways that we can, we can actually at least assess, if not, if things get even better, train people um, using virtual technology. Do you want to say some more on it, Kevin? Yeah, sure. I mean, you mentioned simulator sickness. And when we ran our own uh, study using uh, simulators, it was a real issue that uh, more adults were afflicted by this, yeah. but certainly teens were as well. And so it was something to consider. And I fear that as well with like a virtual environment. But the one question I had, uh, Flora, was, uh, you know, we've seen more and more use of heads up displays in cars. And, uh, you know, we have to, there's a real, uh, I guess, tension between distraction and assistive technologies and, uh, you know, going along the way of, uh, you know, assistance with visuals. What about heads up displays? Do you think that can play a role in the future for uh, improving safety of teens? Yeah, so heads up displays are becoming more common and clearly if your eyes are on the road, it's better than if your eyes are off the road. No question about that. I always worry about new technologies with teens because one of the challenges with a teen when they scan is they get tunnel vision and they look just straight ahead. They don't look far ahead into the sides. And so if there's a display in front of them that's grabbing their eye, that might be a challenge. Um, as far as the simulator sickness, going back to that, I was really happy that we had almost no simulator sickness in our 40,000. And it's really about keeping it short, really short, and one screen. You know, I think that sometimes when we have a technology, we want to use too much of it. So I think that uh, there are ways we can get around this. As time goes on, I think the technology will get better and better. And I uh, really applaud the efforts you're doing there, um, trying to get this, uh, this kind of off the ground, try to get better, um, better training. So good job. Next question is, um, uh, have you studied the comparative benefit of 50 hours of supervised driver e uh, education versus 50 hours of VDAS? Video, as much as yeah. yeah, so that's great. I, I would never do 50 hours of the VDAS because it's a 15-minute assessment. It's not training at all. So if you talk about 50 hours of other simulators that actually are training simulators as a opposed to ours, which is actually a diagnostic tool. I, there's no question that on the road training is what people need to do to get those skills. It doesn't mean that they might not be able to be introduced to some unusual conditions through the simulator, but what you need is not 50 hours, you need hundreds of hours of um, on the road deliberate practice. And so the paradigm that we have, um, which um, others might find interesting is that you use a, a, an assessment tool like we have to figure out where the challenges are with your driving. And that then becomes somewhat of a prescription for what the deliberate practice needs to be so that we can be more efficient. In our other research where we developed teen driving plan, which is on our website, you can feel free to use it, it's free. The teen driving plan, what we found um, when we were researching this, we did randomized trial and showed that it was effective, is that families would really limit the, um, the driving that they did with their teen. So the teen would get 50 hours, but it would be going back and forth in the same route to school. That's not what we want. We want them to have a wide range of experience 
and way more than 50 hours. So the answer, simple answer to your question, I don't think that you can replace on-road driving training with, um, with simulation, but I do think that simulation, both as a diagnostic tool that we're doing, but also um, potentially with training can, can help to guide where the family needs to, um, needs to move forward. Does that answer the question? Thank you. I think so. That was, uh, that was well done. Uh, uh, from uh, Dr. Smith, uh, Sharon Smith, any suggestions on how to get schools more involved? Uh, many new teen drivers drive to and from school, but most schools do not monitor the parking lot. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I, um, years ago, we were doing a lot with high schools and thinking about how to get them more engaged. And if you think about it, you know, they're, they're exhausted at the end of the day from sports and other things. So it's really important. We actually had some schools adopt the idea that you would get a parking space if you did certain training. So part of like one of the things that makes it easier for teens is if it's upfront, something you have to do in order to get a benefit, teens are much more likely to do it. And you would lose your space if you didn't do this, if you were seen doing things that weren't, um, weren't safe. So those are ways schools could, could handle this if they were willing to handle it. I know Connecticut is very dependent upon people driving. So I think the teens would be very, um, would, would, that would be very effective. The other way is to really engage the coaches. You know, the coaches really are, particularly for sports <clears throat> or the advisors for like drama, any of these kinds of things, they are very influential in the teens. And so this is another way that if you could make sure that these coaches, these advisors know the risks of teen driving, they can really help with that. Just like we've engaged the coaches related to concussion, we can engage the coaches related to driving. We did develop a few years ago a model of driving agreement for high schools to use. So if uh, most kids, if they want to park at the high school, they have to sign an agreement. And we looked at the agreements that schools had, and they contained nothing about safety or safe driving or a commitment to do so. Although it's just a small piece of it, we did create kind of a model agreement with those pieces inside of it where uh, a team would also commit to uh, obeying the GDL in Connecticut. Wow, that would be great if that were uh, implemented. So that sounds like an advocacy thing that someone could take on, some residents or whatever could take on tomorrow. Wow, they have a lot to work on. We have time for two more questions from uh, one of our pediatric neurologists. Could, could you talk a bit more about drivers with special needs? I have been referring them to a close course through, uh, a close course through um, could be both, through Easter Seals, but this is more focused on physical disabilities. More resources for this group certainly are needed. I completely agree that we need to be thinking about resources for our special needs um, kids. In fact, we are doing a lot of research, particularly Ali Curry and my team and um, my, my center is really focusing on um, autism, spectrum disorder, ADHD, because we all know that particularly in a place like Connecticut, driving is what is going to bring them independence. So here's where I strongly recommend looking for these driver rehabilitation specialists and look for, and then the schools that they recommend to teach teens how to drive. They, the teens with special needs will need different driver training from what their parents can offer and maybe what a standard school can offer. 
And so uh, there actually is a national registry of the uh, driver rehabilitation um, specialists. I think on teendriversource.org, you'll be able to see some um, information related to that. Uh, so I think that these, this is, that's where I would go. Um, I would take it seriously. And if the teen wants to drive, try to put them in the best position to drive safely and competently. Great, thank you. And then uh, one last question. Uh, this is from Dr. Livingston. Uh, uh, that, that was an excellent presentation. She says that, can you discuss which monitoring devices or apps are effective? Wow, th th there are so many monitoring devices out there. I have to say that we have been doing research with one of the ones that's used by an insurance company that's just an app on your phone. And that can be infective in and of itself. That could be something as simple as that. Um, installing the monitoring devices in cars, um, the videos I was gonna show you were from DriveCam many years ago. That's just a lot of work to put that in the car, but it has been very successful. Um, the teens don't necessarily like it initially, but after a short period of time, they um, aren't aware of it. But I just think where we're headed now is just having an app on the phone that can monitor um, if the teen is going too fast for road conditions um, and other types of things. There also are cars that have teen driving modes in them that can limit how fast you drive or things like that. There might be something else to consider. So uh, rather than talk about a specific product, um, I think that what you might do is talk to your insurance company. Your insurance company likely has an app that they would give you for free or no low cost that you can use with your team. Great, thank you. And um, this just one comment, uh, comment from one of your uh, former or colleagues uh, for, for you, Dr. Winston, the, from Magdara Tynan. I said, Flora, thank you. Wonderful to see you here you again. Thank you for all the work and advocacy you've done to advance safety and injury prevention for teens. Uh, this is from Magdara Tynan, former colleague and fellow at CHOP oh. way too long ago. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, I miss you. I miss you, Dara. It's good to hear you, hear you, you so, through a chat. Well, thank you for having me. I hope this was helpful and feel free to contact us if you have more questions and use teendriversource.org. It's free and available to you. Thank you, Dr. Winston. It was great uh, listening to you and your presentation. And I'm definitely going to follow up on some of this, uh, the diagnostic driving. Um, I think there's a real space for that in Connecticut. Wow, thank you, Kevin. That's wonderful. Uh, okay, looking forward to working with you more. And okay. tell Gary I said hi. Will do, for sure. Thank okay. you both. And thank you everyone for joining us. Have a safe day and we'll see you again on Friday and then again on Tuesday. Take care, bye-bye. Bye-bye.